Welcome to PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Brad Soboleski, and today I'm going to be talking about Kawasaki disease, the disease that makes sense to you but sounds made up when you tell parents about it. Now, Kawasaki, otherwise known as mucocutaneous lymph node syndrome, is one of the most common vasculitides of childhood, and its clinical features reflect widespread inflammation of primarily medium-sized muscular arteries. Interestingly, it is a self-limited condition, with most children having fever and the other classic symptoms that last about 12 days without any therapy. But here's the rub. If you don't treat, the risk of coronary artery aneurysms and cardiac complications is very high. So even though it would go away on its own, treatment is indicated. Kawasaki disease is a systemic illness, and the hallmark is fever for more than five days. So to make the diagnosis clinically, you need fever greater than five days and at least four of the following five, and I'll go into these in detail bilateral bulbar conjunctival injection, oral mucous membrane changes, including injected or fissured lips, strawberry tongue, or red pharynx, changes to the peripheral extremities, erythema of the palms and soles, hand and feet edema, or even periungual desquamation, a polymorphous rash, which means it could just be a rash that looks like a lot of different things, and cervical lymphadenopathy with at least one lymph node in the cervical chain greater than 1.5 centimeters in diameter. The differential diagnosis includes all of those infectious exanthems of childhood, you know, like adenovirus and about 8 billion others. All right, so let's look at the symptoms in detail. First, fever, the hallmark. It is the most consistent and, according to those criteria that I mentioned, the one you have to have. It's minimally responsive to antipyretic agents. It's usually greater than 38.5 centigrade or 101.3 Fahrenheit during most of the illness, and it's present for greater than five days. These febrile children are irritable. It's very different than the fever you get with otitis media, and the kid looks a little bit better after you treat them. Even if you treat the fever and the temp comes down, these kids are cranky. Next, conjunctivitis. It's bilateral and non-exudative. It's seen in greater than 75 to 90%. It is bulbar and it spares the limbus. What's the limbus? That's the area right around the iris. So if you look up close, you'll see a little white halo. Kids are photophobic. Interestingly, 70% of kids with conjunctivitis will also have anterior uveitis in Kawasaki disease. Now, this can be seen under slit lamp exam and can help differentiate it for some other competing diagnoses in some cases. All right, mucositis, seen in about 90% of kids. And this can include cracked red lips, strawberry tongue, or just some erythema of the pharynx. Discrete lesions, like vesicles or ulcers, these are not seen in Kawasaki disease, and they're seen in other illnesses like HSV, herpangina, and many more. The rash of Kawasaki disease is seen in about 70 to 90% as well, and it's polymorphous. That means it can look like a lot of things. Usually starts early on with uh, perineal erythema and some mild desquamation. Then it can look macular, morbilliform, or even targetoid. The skin lesions are, by the end, diffuse. In some kids, they can look psoriform, but they are not vesicular. 
in about 50 to 85%, you'll see extremity changes. And this is generally the last manifestation to appear around the fifth and beyond days of fever. You'll get indurated edema of the dorsum of the hands and feet. You can get diffuse erythema of the palms and soles. And the convalescent phase of Kawasaki is often characterized by this sheet-like desquamation, which starts in the periungual region of the hands and feet in most kids. You also see these linear nail creases. They're called Bose lines. Now, the least common of the classic findings, as described by Dr. Kawasaki, is cervical lymphadenopathy. It's only seen in about a quarter, up to 70%. And it's the least consistent feature. These are the anterior cervical nodes, the ones that overlie the sternocleidomastoid muscle. And on exam, you would feel a single palpable large node greater than 1.5 centimeters. If you were to ultrasound this, it might actually look like a bunch of grapes or group of nodes bunched together. There's a lot of other findings in Kawasaki that are not strictly part of the classical criteria. These include arthritis, which is seen in up to a quarter of kids, Diarrhea, vomiting, or abdominal pain, which may be seen in three of five. Irritability, and this is at least 50%, but in my practice, a lot higher. Um, older children with Kawasaki, you know, like seven, eight, nine year olds, may present with more lethargy than irritability. Vomiting alone, cough or rhinorrhea, decreased oral intake, and even frank joint pain. However, the most important complications are those that are in the cardiovascular system. Almost all of the conditions that mimic Kawasaki that are on the differential diagnosis do not involve the heart. You can get coronary artery dilatation and myocardial abnormalities, and those include decreased contractility, mild mitral valve regurgitation, and other problems. Acute myocardial infarction is the main cause of death in Kawasaki disease, and there's a greater risk of that if the aneurysms are greater than 8 millimeters. Most of them are 4 millimeters or under. 30% of children with Kawasaki will have coronary artery dilatation at diagnosis per two separate studies by Prince and Dominguez. Frank aneurysms generally don't develop until greater than 10 days. The risk in untreated children of coronary aneurysms is one in five. Therefore, pediatric cardiology consult is incredibly important. They can differentiate early on vascular ectasia and certainly follow conditions over time. So children with risk factors for coronary artery disease are those that are less than a year of age or greater than nine years of age at the time of diagnosis, male, those that have had fevers for greater than 14 days, a sodium less than 135, a hematocrit less than 35%, and a white blood cell count greater than 12,000. You can have other vascular disease as well. So for instance, little infants can have brachial artery aneurysms. You can actually see and feel these on exam sometimes. They can also have poor peripheral perfusion, cold and cyanotic hands and feet, and gangrene has even been described. So I mentioned some of the criteria and complications, but specifically, how do you make the diagnosis of Kawasaki? Well, classically, you have to have the presence of fever lasting greater than five days, combined with at least four of the five classic physical symptoms without an alternative explanation. These were originally established by Dr. Kawasaki. And interestingly, this was described before we even knew about coronary involvement. Labs can support, but don't make the diagnosis for you. But if you're thinking it's Kawasaki's, get a CBC indifferential, hepatic profile, 
with an AST and ALT. Make sure you have an albumin. Get an ESR and a CRP and a urinalysis. High white blood count and thrombocytosis, elevated transaminases, elevated ESR and CRP, normocytic anemia, and sterile pyuria are all suggestive of Kawasaki disease. Kids need to get an echocardiogram as soon as possible to establish a baseline and assess for prognosis. And then there's incomplete Kawasaki disease. It's also been called atypical, but incomplete is the preferred term. These are children with suspected Kawasaki disease who don't fulfill the classic diagnostic criteria. Maybe they have fever greater than five days, but only three of the four mucocutaneous signs of inflammation. Cervical lymphadenopathy is the most often finding missing here, and the diagnosis of incomplete Kawasaki depends on clinical judgment and labs, but it really remains uncertain unless the child develops coronary artery abnormalities. Labs that will be seen more characteristically in incomplete Kawasaki include a white blood count greater than 15,000, a normocytic normochromic anemia for age, platelets greater than 450,000 after seven days of illness, an ESR greater than 40, or a CRP greater than 3, urinalysis with sterile pyuria greater than 10 white blood cells per high power field, an ALT greater than 50, and an albumin less than 3. If you're thinking incomplete Kawasaki, you should also think echo. So for fever greater than 5 days, if you've got 3 findings and some supportive labs, suspect incomplete Kawasaki's and consult cardiology. You should even suspect incomplete Kawasaki disease in an infant less than six months of age with unexplained fever for greater than seven days. This is a very high-risk population for very bad heart disease. As you know, I work in the pediatric emergency department. This is where we make the diagnosis, but typically don't do treatment. But I think it's important to discuss it because we're learning more and more about the combinations of therapy and prognosis. Treatment centers around IVIG, and we actually started doing this in the 1980s. I was in grade school, so I was not aware of what was going on at the time. But right now, there are randomized controlled studies and meta-analyses that have confirmed that IVIG reduces the risk of coronary artery aneurysms. The benefits in children who have already developed coronary artery aneurysms before treatment are more equivocal. The most commonly cited dose is 2 grams per kilo, it's most effective if given within the first 7 to 10 days, and we actually don't know 100% why it works, but it does, and it has a generalized anti-inflammatory effect. Children are admitted, given the first IVIG dose, and then may get a second dose if the fever, you know, a temperature greater than 38.3 centigrade, persists for more than 36 hours after that initial dose. The main risk of giving IVIG is anaphylaxis. And depending on the child, you may alter the rates or give drugs like Tylenol or Benadryl before treatment. Know that criteria exist for predicting resistance to IVIG for Japanese children called the Kobayashi criteria and for non-Japanese children. And it's important to assess these prior to starting treatment in the inpatient realm. I'm not going to go over these in the podcast because it's not germane to pediatric emergency medicine, but suffice to say, they are very easy to look up. Traditionally, Aspirin has been included in the therapeutic regimen for children with Kawasaki disease as well. 
And this has generally been high-dose aspirin, you know, like 30 to 50 milligram per kilogram. Now, it's actually unclear if the addition of high-dose aspirin provides greater anti-inflammatory effects than does IVIG alone. A lot of the original studies of IVIG reducing the risk of coronary artery problems also included aspirin in the protocols. Several meta-analyses have shown that aspirin doesn't necessarily affect aneurysm formation on its own either. So right now, your protocols may vary by institution. Often, 30 to 50 milligram per kilogram per day of aspirin, with a max of 4 grams per day, is administered. It's stopped after the ESR normalizes, which can take up to two months. The dose of aspirin goes from high dose down to low dose once the kid has been afebrile for about 48 hours. After discharge, parents are instructed to check fever rectally every six hours until 48 hours after the last fever. That's the point that you decrease aspirin dose to three to five milligrams per kilogram per day. IV methylprednisolone is in the treatment protocol for children who do not respond even to two doses of IVIG. Well out of the scope of this podcast is refractory Kawasaki disease, whose treatment options include drugs like steroids, infliximab, cyclosporin, or more. Treatment protocols for incomplete Kawasaki disease are basically the same as regular Kawasaki disease. And though I alluded to it earlier, kids can be discharged home when they are fever-free after IVIG, following a period of at least 36 hours. Children are discharged home, and again, parents are told to regularly check for fever. Any fever, especially within the first 7 to 10 days of treatment, needs a return visit ASAP. Early on, children get repeat echoes as frequently as every 2 to 6 weeks, and it will take many, many days to weeks for children's energy levels and activity to improve. Parents are instructed not to allow administration of live virus vaccines for 11 months after IVIG. Conversely, because they are on aspirin therapy, influenza vaccine is incredibly important for children older than six months of age to prevent complications such as Rye syndrome. All right, so that was a brief synopsis of the diagnosis and treatment of Kawasaki disease. You will definitely make the diagnosis in the pediatric emergency department. Again, the classic criteria as established by Kawasaki back in the 1960s include fever greater than five days and at least four of the following five. Conjunctivitis, oral changes, peripheral extremity changes, a polymorphous rash, or a lymph node in the anterior cervical chain greater than 1.5 centimeters in diameter. Lab workup should include a CBC and differential, ESR, CRP, electrolytes, especially an albumin, hepatic profile with an ALT and an AST, and urinalysis. Kids need a cardiology consult and an echo as soon as possible to assess for the risk of coronary artery disease. You can check out more great educational content at PEMblog.com. Follow me on Twitter at PEMTweets. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your online educational content. For PEM Currents, this has been Brad Soboleski. See you next time.